Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I welcome you to a full hour of delicious conversation and gastronomic inspiration. The holidays are here again, and every Sunday I'll deliver the best of food and drink culture to you. From chefs' perspectives to recipes and culinary insight, eaters across the country dig in because I'm dedicated to great taste. I hope you'll open your mind, expand your palate, and join me to gain delicious knowledge on the wonderful world of food. I'm delighting your palate with the best ideas for the coming holidays, Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas. And of course, you can entertain with ease this holiday season by choosing from my endless list of seasonal recipes at chefjamie.com. And you can find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chefjamiegwen. So the million-dollar question for today's cooking lesson is, what is Hasselback? Well, the Hasselback potato is clearly the most impressive spud to ever call itself a side dish. They also sometimes go under the name accordion potatoes, or I've seen them called pill bug potatoes, which I think is really funny. But no matter what you call it, the result is the same. It's a single potato that's been sliced into thin wedges, but left joined at the bottom and then baked until the layers fan out into these rounds of crispy, decadent bliss. Now, the slits actually allow for butter or olive oil and spices and other toppings to seep in between each of the crevices for truly fabulous flavor. A Hasselback potato is like having all of your potato dreams come true at once. The potatoes have the crispy edges of French fries, but the middles are creamy like mashed potatoes. So if you want to be a culinary hero this Thanksgiving, you should learn to Hasselback. Now, it's true, they are a quick side dish for dinner, but their elegant presentation really makes an eye-catching addition to holiday meals. Now, despite their fancy pants appearance, Hasselback takes really no more time and little more effort than your average foil-wrapped baked potato. But did you know that you can Hasselback many a fruit and vegetable, like apples cut in Hasselback fashion are decadent, brushed with butter, sprinkled with cinnamon, sugar, and baked, Squash, like butternut, if you have a great big cleaver and a strong bicep, (laughs) cut Hasselback, drizzled with chipotle honey, and roasted, so impressive and delicious. And by the way, sweet potatoes too. And then you can even Hasselback a chicken breast and stuff it with cheese and herbs you just cut on the bias. It's not so bad either. You see, when a recipe becomes a viral hit on the internet, which Hasselback has, well, you just have to check and see what all the fuss is about, right? Hasselback potatoes, worth the fuss. Now, we can thank the Swedes for this newfound culinary phenomenon. The Hasselback potato is actually named for the hotel in Stockholm where the slicing treatment was invented in the 1950s. And the original recipe wrapped the spud in bacon. 
I think they're onto something, don't you? <laughs> you start with, for the basic Hasselback potato, a few potatoes, and any potato will do. Some love a traditional russet. I've seen it done with small red bliss potatoes. I've always loved a Yukon gold. It's buttery and yummy. Um, and all you do is you slice um, vertically, leaving the potato still intact at the bottom. Now, first off, I like to get a thin horizontal sliver off the bottom of the potato to ensure that it rests flat on your cutting board and on the baking sheet. The key to a great Hasselback potato, though, is your knife skills and a great way to practice, don't you think? So you slice straight down into the potato, but you stop just short of cutting all the way through and you make your slices as thin or as thick as you like. So you don't have to be a culinary master. I've seen it done with half inch slices and I happen to think that quarter inch slices are thin enough to get really great benefits of the culinary method. But no matter your expertise with a knife, you can hassle back. You place the potatoes on a baking sheet and then next comes the fat, whether it be butter or olive oil or any mix of fats. I mix butter and olive oil for richness and flavor, but also the olive oil because of its high smoking point lends crispiness. I've actually thought about trying duck fat, but I haven't done that yet, but I should. And you really don't need much. I mean, you just need enough to brush the outside of the potato before it's baked. And then halfway through the baking process, you brush it again. The second application, by the way, is very important. When you first cut the potatoes, the slices are still very tight together, but about halfway through the baking... The potatoes have expanded and the fan that you've created from cutting those thin slices top to bottom starts to fan out and it gives you some space to get the butter or the olive oil down into the nooks and the crannies and it really ensures crispy perfection when you baste once during the roasting. Now, these accordion folds, also known as Hasselback, are begging to be stuffed with just about anything. So shredded cheese, minced herbs, perhaps crumbled bacon. In fact, a loaded Hasselback potato sounds really good right now. For the holidays though, you know Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's actually been highlighted on this show. He graced this show with his new cookbook recently. He's the food genius behind Serious Eats, which everyone loves. And he took Hasselback to a whole new level for the holiday season. He combines the method of potato gratin with Hasselback roast potatoes for the ultimate creamy in the middle, crispy on the top casserole. He takes mandolin slices of potato. So he cuts them all the way through, thin slices. But instead of layering them horizontally, he stands them up to simulate Hasselback. And he puts them into a casserole dish, pretty tight in fact. And then he pours in heavy cream and shredded cheese and he bakes it for the ultimate gratin. And I cannot wait to try it. And if you've tried it, by the way, let me know how it turns out, please. Jamie at chefjamie.com will get you to me. But with regards to Hasselback, start with the basic. If you haven't made Hasselback potatoes before, Wait till you see what all the buzz is about. You will end up with the most stylish baked potatoes on the block. And I will, of course, post my Hasselback recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Chef Jamie Gwen. And, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> 
Okay, there's some food news from this past week. Speaking of potatoes that you might want to know, here's some news you can use. You might never have to worry about potatoes or apples for that matter oxidizing again thanks to modern food science. Two companies received green lights from the U.S. Department of Agriculture this past week for non-browning potato varietals. They're actually being called biotech potatoes. Not sure how I feel about that. And all three of the potato varieties that are being tested have been removed of the gene that is responsible for bruising and browning. Now, the potato companies say that this modification will help reduce food waste and therefore, you know, increase food security because there is a greater food supply. By turning off the browning and the bruising gene, fewer chips and fries would be rejected for discoloration. Statistics show, though, that only 5% of fries and chips are rejected because of browning. And, you know, the experts say they're not sure about GMO potatoes either. Of course, the Center for Food Safety has raised their concerns on the yet unknown consequences. And I think I'll take my potatoes straight up, like with a brown spot or two, and non-GMO. How about you? I'm good with that. But it is great dinner party conversation, don't you think? (laughs) Oh, don't touch your dial. We have a really delicious hour of conversation coming up. Sitting down with me to dish just next, he is the much-beloved New York Times columnist, Mark Bittman, and he's talking about how to bake everything. Also, we'll dish on Chicago's acclaimed restaurant, Fat Rice, later in the hour. And uh, before the close of this show, we are toasting with fall cocktails. So don't touch your dial. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen here. I'll be right back. This is where inspiring, informative, and entertaining conversation abounds. Welcome back to the delicious conversation, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. He taught us how to cook everything, first by using his minimalist approach in his award-winning column in the New York Times, and today through his vast string of more than 20 cookbooks, all of which have reached bestseller status. His newest cookbook release is a doozy, proving that Mark Bittman is unafraid of the big. It's entitled How to Bake Everything, and it's an encyclopedia of simple recipes for the best baking. He's debunking the baking myths, deconstructing recipes, and demystifying every baking opportunity to make turning out savory and sweet favorites more simple and certainly easier. He's a tough man to track down, but we found him and I am delighted because he's here to dish. Ladies and gentlemen, the mastermind that is Mark Bittman is here. What? You're laughing. I'm calling you a mastermind. It's well-deserved. Okay. Thank you. Nice introduction. (laughs) Thanks, Jamie. I'm glad to have you back. No, come on, Mark. Really, anyone that looks at this book has to think like this took you 10 years and, you know, 10 million hours. It's an encyclopedia. It's very impressive. 
Well, thank you. As I um, said before we were on the air, it actually turned out better than I'd hoped, so I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. Okay, tell us about your philosophy. Maybe going into the writing of this book, over 700 recipes on how to bake everything, what makes baking more approachable in a nutshell? You know, I think, you know, you asked about philosophy, and I came into this project with one core thought, and that was that people think that cooking is an art and baking is a science, and it's just ridiculous. Baking, (laughs) as it happens, is a subset of cooking, and if you can cook, you can bake, and vice versa. And if you can learn how to cook, you can learn how to bake. It's really all cooking is about applying, mixing ingredients and applying heat to them to turn them into dishes, and baking is no different. So once you're familiar with a few basic principles, I'm not saying you don't have to measure. Pretty often you do. Most times you do. But once you're familiar with a few basic principles, baking is as straightforward and simple as any other kind of cooking. So the the mystification of baking has been a really a disservice to everybody. I have to agree with you. I think the same rule applies to cooking, yours and mine, and, and all the savvy cooks, those that love to eat and love to eat uh, and love to cook and love to eat out there, that if you can master a few signature recipes, like if you have a go-to brownie, or a really great cupcake, or just the the perfect birthday cake that you've made time and time again. You can master baking as a whole. I think that's true. I mean, once you once you sort of understand the the basics of flour and sugar and butter and so on, it's not it's not that difficult. The other thing that makes baking really nice is that, especially with desserts, they're pretty much from the pantry. That is, almost every ingredient is something that you have around already and will Mm. keep for a long time. Now, of course, this is not true of fruit pies, and it's not true of um, many of the safely baking dishes, but it's really true of cakes and cookies and brownies and bars and, you know, those kinds of things. You have those ingredients in the house already. Exactly. Okay, so speaking of those ingredients and your go-to pantry, which you give us a, a very complete and wonderful listing of, do you have a favorite flower at the moment? Like, what's your go-to outside of all-purpose? Well, I, um, I do a lot of bread baking, so yes. I'm constantly playing with um, new flowers. I'm currently, I guess my favorite right now is spelt, but... Hmm. Um, you know, I, I use a lot of rye, I use barley flour, I use a bunch of different flours as complements mostly to all-purpose flour in bread baking. Most breads are still better with a percentage of white flour and them, a sizable percentage. So everything else brings flavor, changes texture, adds beautiful color, but most breads are still good with white flour. And, um, you know, in, in most desserts, you're still going to start with all-purpose or cake flour. I mean, it's there's a reason that it's the best, um, most common flour, and that is is that it combines um, body and lightness and and um, a kind of neutral flavor that we've come to prefer. For sure. Okay, it might be a personal question, Mr. Bittman, Uh-oh. but I know. Do you sift? I don't think I've sifted in 10 years. Okay, good. Me neither. I feel so much better about myself, (laughs) as as do hordes of people listening. Uh, Sometimes, you know, if you have a really, really coarse whole grain flour, you 
sometimes want to sift out the bran um, because it, especially in bread baking, because it um, it can tear the gluten. So it's it's got sharp edges to it, which you don't see, of course. But anyway, that's a fine point. The okay. answer is no. Is I don't no. sift. And and a good answer. Thank you. Uh, can we dig in to some of the recipes? I'd like to discuss the versatility of biscuit dough. I love that you use it for so much and the importance of cold butter. If you can master a biscuit, you can make strawberry shortcake. You can make sweet and savory, uh, you know, everything topped with, you know, leftover uh, turkey for Thanksgiving becomes pot pie with a biscuit. I'm in. You know, the, someone asked me the other day, um, if they should be making bread for uh, Thanksgiving. And I said, well, you know, oven space is at a premium at Thanksgiving. It's super busy time. Making bread is undeniably a project, and bread is not as good the second day as it is the first. I think the thing to do on Thanksgiving and any other time you want bread at the last minute is to make biscuits. And there's mm-hmm. nothing faster than drop biscuits. So... Um, and and they you know they take no skill whatsoever. So I think for <laughs> beginners, but also for pros, I think biscuits are really where it's at. Fabulous! I love the piece you wrote about in the vast seven hundred pages. I love how you talk about cookies as edible containers. I mean, we know Dominique Ansel has made the chocolate chip shot glass cookie famous, <laughs> uh, but but twills and meringue cups very doable at home. Yeah. I mean, you can shape cookie dough into anything Love you want and use it in any way you want. But I want to, you know, you're, you've been cooking a long time, and so you, you pick up on the sort of more unusual things. I want to reiterate that this is really a, a baking book for not only for um, intermediate and, and experienced cooks who will find plenty of ideas, I think, in here, but, for, but sure. for new cooks who are intimidated by baking. This is really the way to go. Oh, and and I agree. And by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because the great Mark Bittman is here of the New York Times fame and 20 plus cookbooks. His newest release, How to Bake Everything, might be the ultimate food lover's gift-able for the holiday season because you literally have a lifetime of recipes for simpler, more flexible, easygoing baking that makes it doable no matter your skill level. With that said, Mark, leave us with your simplest go-to cake recipe. Like if you were going to make birthday cake for a friend tonight, last minute, what would you make or bake? You know, I think I would do um, a simple pound cake. I really mm. like that and so does everyone else, but I Me would um, I would glaze it or I would do a soak for it and that's, you know, that's something that I get into a little bit is how you can dress up cakes and even cookies with different kinds of soak. So I think I'd make a pound cake and um, given the weather here at the moment, I think I'd make it a sort of warm mm. coffee cinnamon kind of Ooh. soak on that. I think that would work well at the last minute. The other thing I want to plug this because my favorite recipe in the book is these chocolate almond cookies which have no flour and are basically cocoa powder mixed with ground almonds and egg whites and sugar and they are amazing. They're black and they're chewy and they're slightly crisp and they are fudgy and they are for chocolate lovers they're the greatest. I saw them and I plan to make them. Good. And just after I'm making shortcut apple strudel. Congratulations to you. Um, really another work of art. 
And I know you pour love and passion into it and you continue to demystify it. it it's simple. It's a go-to. Um, this is really, I think, an essential cookbook for those that want to master baking or, you know, find a way to ease baking into their daily lives. It is doable. And Mark Bittman proves it. Congratulations, Mark. And thank you again for gracing this show with your passion. Oh, thanks for having me, Jamie. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon, I hope. Okay, I look forward to it as well. The book is available now from the prolific author and food writer, Mark Bittman, bringing the joy of baking to life. Stay tuned. We have more sweet and savory conversations. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, exploring flavors from around the world. Today, we're digging deep into the vibrant food culture of Macau, the East meets West melting pot of Chinese and Portuguese, Malaysian and Indian foodways, as seen through the lens of the cult favorite Chicago restaurant called Fat Rice. Since the restaurant's opening in 2012, Fat Rice has consistently wowed critics and customers, offering insightful and delectable dishes like Minchi, this classic Macanese meat hash, and a Portuguese-influenced chicken curry, and oh, their famous arroz gordo, which is paella and fried rice combined. And now you too can bring this eclectic and wonderfully, uniquely flavored dish into your own kitchen. It's the flavors of Macau and the adventures of Fat Rice Cookbook just released. Chef and owner of Fat Rice, Abraham Conlon, is here to dish, and I'm really glad to have you. Hi, Chef. Hello, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, um, this is a, a really fabulous, uh, very progressive, amazing cookbook that tells the story of the cuisine of Macau, and I love how you fell in love with it. So if you would, give us just a, a little bit of, of the backstory of your great success today. Absolutely. Well, you know, I uh, grew up very food curious uh, mm-hmm. in a Portuguese-American family. I grew up in a town that had a, a very large uh, and diverse population of Southeast Asian and Indian and Chinese and That's Brazilian, cool. Portuguese, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was around all different flavors all my life. And um you know, as a young cook, I began to uh, explore Asian markets and, um, and, and cooking at the best restaurants I could. And uh, so I was food curious, and I read an article in 1999 in Sever Magazine by Margaret Sharon about the original fusion of Macau that incorporated Portuguese and Southeast Asian and Chinese and Indian ingredients all harmoniously in one. And there were people there that were utilizing their cuisine as a, as a method of uh, cultural preservation. And I vowed to go there one day. And um, about 10 years later, I, I did, at the same time, kind of researching uh, Macanese cuisine and kind of global Portuguese uh, influence on cuisine from, from Brazil to Africa to, to, um, to for even Fall River, Massachusetts, where I knew mm. where I'm from. So that's kind of my starting point. And, and really, it's an exceptional story. It's amazing to me to read about it at the beginning of the book because you take us there. And I think it's a testament to the fact that 
there is so much knowledge and so much learning and education in travel and exploring other cuisines, whether you, you know, uh, fly over an ocean or you find those unique communities with the ethnic influence where you live and you really explore and and expose your palate to new things. Absolutely. It's a wonderful way for us to to get to know each other and for us to, mm. like you said, explore and, and find new things uh, that there are in the world other than just beyond our uh, normal lives. Daily and, scope. Uh, food is definitely a way uh, that I do that in a way that many people are beginning to do that. And, and I really think that the more we share and uh, mm. the more curious we are and the more open we are, the, you know, uh, the better the better people will all be. Oh, so. I, I agree with you. Um, it's a fascinating culture with so many influences in the cuisine. Can you talk with us, please, about um, all of that Asian influence and how it all converges together? I mean, the idea of paella and fried rice having a baby to make <laughs> arroz gordo. I love that concept. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yes, well, I mean, absolutely, these, these recipes, you know, and these are definitely our takes on um, not only Macanese recipes, but other similar kind of natural uh, fusion recipes that, that culminate through Eurasian culture, uh, whether it be Singapore, and Mal- uh, Malaysia, Goa, India, etc. And there's all a little bit of that influence in the book. But the book is mainly um, Macanese, uh, or at least inspired by Macau and Macanese food. And... Um, you know, when, to think about it, to understand kind of why one one place uh, can kind of have all of these ingredients uh, mixing and melting on a plate from olive oil to soy sauce to bay leaf to shrimp paste with coconut milk and mm. tamarind um, and chilies and, 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 and sausages and, and all of these things and Indian spices and all these things that are cu- kind of coming together in a very harmonious way, you really have to understand a little bit of history. And so about, you know, approximately 500 years ago, the world was kind of divided in half by the two major naval powers, Portugal and Spain. Spain would get everything to the west of Cape Verdean Islands and Brazil, and Portugal, everything to the east, and, and for them to go out and trade and, and to, um, you know, seek, seek out the, uh, the riches that they wanted to. And one of those things was spices and kind of and, and ingredients. And mm-hmm. they would um, essentially, each place that they were, from Brazil to Africa to India, each place would add to the exchange. And... So in each of these places, they have their own kind of morphings and fusions of uh, various cultures and cuisine. And Macau is kind of the culminating point of all of those. Right. So talk about a melting pot, right? It's, it's the best of everything you love. Like all the ingredients, all those secret ingredients that come together um, that, by the way, your cookbook is getting rave reviews for, for big names, and just released, it's already a bestseller. Uh, because, by the way, if you just tuned in, you're late. We are dishing with chef and owner of Fat Rice, the famed Chicago restaurant. Abraham Conlin is here, and we're dishing on the cookbook release called The Adventures of Fat Rice. There's more fat rice in your radio. Don't touch your dial. We'll be right back. It's Chicago's most loved new restaurant, Fat Rice, has certainly made an extraordinarily delicious impact. And the cookbook 
is doing just the same. Chef and partner Abraham Conlin is here. That that melting pot of ingredients you just mentioned are all my favorites. They're like my Asian pantry combined with my Indian spices. And when they come together, that's essentially Macanese cuisine. If you were to name one dish, Chef, that demonstrates the Macanese culinary culture, what would it be? Oof, that is, I, I gotta be careful. I might get in trouble on this one. Um, <laughs> it's like a- one of the most heartfelt uh, yes. dishes uh, in the Macanese community is minchi. And it's a, it's a, uh, a mixture of uh, ground, it can be made from many different proteins, but usually it's made from uh, ground pork and, and sometimes beef or a combination of the two, uh, combined with olive oil, bay leaf, three types, as bare minimum, three uh, sweet soy, dark soy, and um, um, regular tamari, mm-hmm. along with um, Worcestershire sauce and a little bit mm-hmm. of sugar. Very, very simple, chopped up, usually served on rice with little fried uh, potato croutons mm-hmm. and maybe an egg on top, or even just very simple. Um, mm-hmm. So that is the one that is kind of the most um, de- near to uh, Macanese people's hearts, mm-hmm. uh, the but I would think for me, one of the things that really drew me in was something like the, uh, the porco balichang tamarindu. And that is a uh, pork cooked with tamarind, uh, Chinese sugar, and Chinese rock sugar, and uh, a shrimp paste called balichao. And balichao is a derivative of uh, Malaysian shrimp paste, um, sometimes thought of, uh, but uniquely Macanese because it has uh, bay leaf, lemon, chili, uh, as well as black peppercorn, and allowed to ferment to this really kind of cheesy, funky, uh, but absolutely deliciously umami-packed uh, condiment. And mm-hmm. so it's pork belly cooked down with that shrimp paste, oh. uh, tamarind, and uh, rock sugar. So it's this kind of sweet, sour, uh, funky, uh, uh, very, very rich, fatty, uh, delicious dish that is uh, soul-satisfying and also exciting and new all at the same time. And that was one of the ones that really brought me in. Oh, so good. Um, You have no doubt made me hungry. Um, And and the hordes of people listening, I know as well. I cannot wait to make Portuguese barbecued clams. Oh, my God, yeah. The the Macanese meatloaf that you make in the restaurant. And then the Macau rice crisp, which I know is a a fat rice classic under the, the sweets, right? Yes. Oh, so you picked so three good. really great recipes, you know, Capella <laughs> being uh, kind of the king of all meatloaves, which I call it. Uh, it has um, it, usually ham and sausage and olives and cheese and bread inside, and then it's covered with uh, bacon brushed with egg and more cheese and baked mm. in this beautiful crown pattern. Um, I love your passion. I love that you've dug so deep into a culture and that you've brought it um, to Chicago, and that you're spreading the gospel in this beautiful cookbook from the much loved Chicago Eatery. It's the new cookbook release entitled The Adventures of Fat Rice. It's a cookbook meets comic book meets history lesson and culinary tour of the unheralded cuisine of Macau. It is super cool. You will want to see it. He is chef and owner Abraham. Conlin and yes, plan a trip now to Chicago's Fat Rice. There is more fabulous food and delicious conversation in your radio right after this.
Cheers to autumn. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're having a cocktail party today, so grab a sweater, grab your glass, and sit out on the porch because autumnal cocktails are perfect for the crisp days of fall. Our resident mixologist, Tony Abu Ghanem, is back, and we've got your fall cocktail needs covered. Tony is widely regarded as a pioneer and leader in the bar world. He is the author of The Modern Mixologist, Contemporary Classic Cocktails, and Vodka Distilled, both award-winning books. You've seen him win three Iron Chef competitions on the Food Network, and he's taking us on a cocktail journey again today. An intensive, I like to call it, to arm you with a wealth of knowledge when it comes to spirits. And I'm so glad to have you back, Tony. Hi, and happy fall. Well, Jamie, always great to be back on the show, and happy fall to you. Thank you. Okay, you've been quenching your thirst with rye whiskey lately, I understand. Is that right? Well, it's amazing what has happened in the rye whiskey, the American whiskey category overall, but rye in particular. It wasn't that long ago, Jamie, that you'd look back, and most distillers would spill more bourbon than they would make rye. (laughs) Um, And with the resurgence of the classic cocktails and bartenders really embracing rye whiskey once again, it has just skyrocketed into popularity. And, you know, new brands are available uh, almost weekly, and Mm. it's just so exciting to see all these great rye whiskeys coming back to the glass uh, and finding their way into cocktails. I think that's so interesting to see that resurgence of rye whiskey uh, very parallel to, as we see at the same time, a uh, a rebirth of rye from a food perspective, Tony, because the rye seed and rye bread and rye starters is like really one of the hottest food trends we're expecting to see bloom, no pun intended, or maybe (laughs) pun intended, in 2017. So there's really an interesting correlation between this um, sort of throwback to that flavor profile and embracing it in both food and drink. And I agree. And when, when I teach whiskey classes and I talk about rye, I make that comparison to rye bread as opposed to wheat bread, that big, powerful, spicy rye grain. And it brings such character to whiskey. And, you know, Mm. you love history. I love history. And when we look back, you know, rye was the original American whiskey because that was the grain that was most readily available in Maryland um, before Bourbon County developed and the Corn Patch Act. So rye whiskeys were the original American whiskeys. And they were these big, powerful Whiskeys. So when you look back at cocktails like the Sazerac, you know, like the original Manhattan, they would have been made with rye whiskey, not bourbon whiskey. And again, I believe that a big part of it, the popularity is the resurgence of the craft of bartending and bringing back these classic recipes. Oh, definitely so. Um, I love the idea of seasonal ingredients like cranberries and apples that pair beautifully with a spirit. And rye whiskey and apples or hard cider, or anything, you know, of the season, tends to create delicious drinks, does it not? I love this time of year, Jamie. Mm-hmm. I just, I love, as we switch into the cooler weather, you know, I switch from vodkas and gins into, you know, aged rums and rye and bourbon whiskeys, and it just blends so well with all those ingredients you're talking about, apples and pears and the mm-hmm. spices of the season, cinnamon and nutmeg and clove and vanilla, and all kind of come together. And 
as we always do, Jamie, you know, if, if you like to eat it, you'll probably like to drink it. Right. So. <laughs> Will you come back next month and share some nogs? I'd love to talk about nog for the December holiday season. And I know you make a pumpkin nog. Uh, that is much talked about, in fact. So if you'll share the recipe and grace us with your cocktail presence next month, we will continue the uh, mixology conversation. Well, I would, I would love to, Jamie, Thank because, you. you know, they say the holidays are not properly observed unless you brew nog for all comers. I love it. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll meet you back here uh, for December Nog. And in the interim, we'll follow your cocktail escapades at themodernmixologist.com. He is Tony Abu Ghanem. And you can always email me at jamie at chefjamie.com for Tony's fall cocktail recipes. I'll post them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Cheers, Tony. Thank you. And here's to cool nights and uh, warm toddies. Cheers and happiness, Jamie. Talk soon. Bye-bye. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope that I inspired you to cook this week, to experiment with a new recipe, or find what pleases your palate. I happen to love when new chefs like Abe Conlon sit down to dish at the table. I find it inspiring, and I hope you do too. You can always find podcasts of shows you might have missed by going to iTunes, FeedBurner, or Blueberry and searching Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And of course, you can show your good taste by tuning in every Sunday. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. You love pumpkin pie, right? I mean, who doesn't? But you don't want to make or bake a whole pie. Well... I have the perfect hack for you. You whip up pumpkin pie in a mug. Yes, you heard me right. It takes less than five minutes and it is absolutely worth it. In a microwave safe mug, you mix together an egg with a cup of pure pumpkin puree, a couple of tablespoons of sweetened condensed milk, some pumpkin pie spice, and just a, a pinch of salt. And you clean the edges of the cup and then microwave on high. It takes about two to three minutes or until the center is no longer liquid. Then you carefully remove the hot mug from the microwave. You sprinkle with graham cracker crumbs. You could top it with a dollop of whipped cream, maybe a sprinkle or a grating of nutmeg. And yes, you have microwave pumpkin pie in a mug and it is so good i will post the recipe on facebook twitter and instagram at chef jamie gwen and i'll meet you here next sunday for more gastronomic inspiration because food feeds your soul i thank you for listening i'm chef jamie gwen signing off and i hope you continue to eat well 